Please uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4. We'll uh, be reading the first three uh, verses of Philippians chapter 4. If you are using the English Standard uh, Version, uh, as I'll be reading from, you might notice uh, the section heading in uh, bold letters in the middle of our passage. Uh, It says, Exhortation, Encouragement, and Prayer. Uh, I would just remind you that these uh, section headings, like the chapters and verse numbers, were uh, later additions uh, uh, to our Bibles. In this case, the, the translators have wanted to make the point that Uh, What Paul says in verse 1 is building on what he has said in chapter 3. I agree with that. I also think that verse 1 is uh, connected and is meant to flow into uh, verses uh, 2 and 3. And so that's why we'll be uh, looking at those together and ignoring uh, the heading. I would also say, uh, just as we get started, our outline is going to be very simple this morning. Uh, We're going to look point 1. Uh, the, the point is just stand, point two is agree, and point three is help. So stand, agree, and help. So let's look now at Philippians chapter four. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Udia, and I, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, as you send your word forth, uh, Lord, uh, we're reminded that there are many things uh, that the enemy would use uh, to conspire Uh, um, uh, to thwart our being blessed and benefited from this uh, word. Uh, Lord, there are the cares of the world that might um, attempt to uh, choke out the words that we are hearing. Uh, There is uh, the uh, the devil who would gladly snatch uh, these words uh, from us. There are all sorts of distractions. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would give us focus, that you would give us understanding, And Lord, that you would give us um, open and ready hearts to receive your word and to apply it. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. In these uh, verses that we're studying this morning, Paul is asking the Philippian believers to do difficult things. Difficult things that would require courage. Perhaps because he saw the a sensitive nature of what he was calling them to, uh, Paul is sure to expose his uh, pastor's heart as he prepares to draw some concluding applications uh, in his letter to the Philippian church. There's a tenderness, a warmth that's exuded uh, from verse 1. As Paul says, My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved... When Paul thinks of this church that he had helped to start, he's filled with affection and an eagerness that he might be able to see them again, as he's mentioned a couple times in this letter already. Uh, He uh, cares deeply for these fellow Christians. They're his family in Christ Jesus. They're his uh, partners in gospel ministry. 
They're his cause for boasting. And he wants them to know that while he is in chains, when he thinks of them, joy radiates from his prison cell. And speaking with such affection, Paul pivots to a concluding instruction. Therefore, he begins, since Jesus is our righteousness, as Paul has written about in chapter 3, and since as citizens of heaven we're still awaiting our final glorification but pressing on or pursuing holiness in a, in a fallen world, therefore stand firm in the Lord. Now remember Paul is writing to the Philippian church and they're experiencing persecution and suffering. Uh, when Paul was in Philippi, uh, he and Silas had been thrown in prison and uh, faced beatings. The Philippians had continued to face hostility after Paul had gone. Uh, they had also faced opposition from uh, the circumcision party or the Judaizers, as we saw in uh, the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, they were facing the dangerous influence of, of uh, those who were enemies of the cross. In a pagan culture, this church was facing threats of all different kinds. And so here, Pastor Paul is affectionately cheering them on from his cell. Hold on. Stand firm. Keep uh, the line. It's military language, and Paul's already used this language once in this uh, letter, back in Philippians 1, uh, verse 27, which was a, a theme verse of sorts for this letter. Paul had urged the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now in a military context, standing firm is rather obvious. It might look like defending a strategic position from the enemy. But what does standing firm look like for the Lord in the church? Well, when Paul says in chapter 4, stand firm thus in the Lord, He's saying that that standing firm involves uh, the, the encouragements, the exhortations that he's already written about in chapter 3. But Paul also means for us to see that standing firm in the Lord is going to include what he's going to talk about in chapter 4. And just as Paul says in chapter 1, standing firm will particularly involve standing united in Jesus. Now, in verses 2 and 3, Paul gives us a personal look into this church. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche, agree in the Lord. And we know very little about these women. Uh, neither is mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, Eudia's name means uh, prosperous journey or pleasant fragrance. Uh, Syntyche's name means fortunate. We know that both of these women were significant contributors to the advance of the gospel in Macedonia. They had labored alongside of Paul and his ministry team. Since Paul had spent uh, very few occasions in Philippi, it likely means that these women were converts during Paul's first missionary journey, which we read about in Acts 16. And our translation says in verse 3, that these women labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. The sense uh, that Paul's language gives us is that these women were co-strugglers in ministry. They've been in the trenches with Paul and Clement and other gospel workers. And the only other place that we've got this 
this word for struggle or labor is used in the verse that we just quoted, Philippians 1.27. When Paul has called the Philippians to stand firm in the face of opposition, he'd indicated in chapter 1 that, what that looked like. Striving side by side, united for the sake of the gospel. So in our passage, Paul's not introducing a, a new thought to this letter but he's applying a major point that he's already made. Stand firm. Stand united. That's how we live in view of the cross. And these women had struggled side by side with Paul, but now they were struggling with or contending with each other. What exactly uh, were they fighting about? Well, unlike uh, 1 Corinthians, where Paul sort of systematically works his way through a list of disagreements that have arisen in the church, and when it comes to Judea and Syntyche, we don't have uh, any such explanation. But I think we, do, uh, we can say some of the things of what this dispute was not. Paul's tone gives us a, a clue as to maybe what some of the boundaries were. He says, I entreat or I plead with Judea. And then it says, if he, he turns to Syntyche, and I entreat and I, I plead with you, Syntyche, agree in the Lord. Now, Paul's tone here is gentle. It's compassionate. It's not the, the sort of commanding tone that he could have taken uh, as an apostle. It, it's not the passionate tone that Paul takes uh, when he uh, sees that the truth of the gospel message is at stake or when there's grave uh, moral error in the church. Even by naming these women, Paul's not rebuking uh, uh, them as we might assume. Dennis Johnson, a commentator, says, uh, makes the point that in, in this ancient culture, by not naming them, it would have been an even harsher approach because it would have been as if to keep these women uh, at arm's length, even though people in the church would have known what he's talking about. Paul's treatment of these women, though it would have likely caused them to blush, because remember, these letters were read in the public assembly of the church. His tone wasn't cold or stern, but it was a warm pastoral plea. Agree in the Lord. So what can we infer from this? Well, if the conflict was not about a doctrinal or a grave moral error, it's more likely that this dispute arose out of the sort of family frictions that come as uh, sinners live in community with other sinners. Maybe Yudia made a comment at small group that rubbed Syntyche the wrong way. Or maybe Syntyche said that the latest outreach was her idea and failed to properly uh, share the credit with Yudia. Or maybe they were fighting over whether to move to digital bulletins or not. I'll leave that one alone. The point is that the cause of this conflict was probably quite unexceptional. If the flames of conflict had erupted in Philippi, it didn't start with an explosion, but it started with the increased uh, building of heat with ongoing friction between these women. And the next thing you know, Yudia is not talking to Syntyche and vice versa. Now, the church potluck is a little chillier. People don't quite linger as long after the service. Maybe uh, clusters uh, begin to form. Hearts begin to harden with bitterness. And the arteries of Christian fellowship are beginning to clog. For all their positive contributions to the church based upon what Paul has heard going on here in this relationship. 
The rupture uh, between these two women was provide, or proving to be an unfortunate stench in congregational life. And so Paul sees that this needs to be addressed. How does Paul address this matter? What does Paul tell these women to do? To agree in the Lord. To have the same mind. Now, Paul's not calling for these women to agree on every point or matter of preference. They've got different gifts, different experiences, different perspectives for the good of the church body. And nor is Paul telling these women just to come to a shared decision about who's right and who's wrong, though there is a place for that sort of mediation. But Paul's appeal is not to come to a shared outcome or a shared decision, but what Paul is, is urging them to, what he's appealing for them to have, is an attitude that's shared in the gospel. So here's a very significant and practical point for us as we consider our relationships with other Christians. Peace in the church starts with an attitude before it's about technique or skillful negotiations or outcomes. Now, for many of us, that might be uh, not very satisfying. If you're like me, uh, you like process. You want clarity. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. How am I supposed to fix this problem? What's the next step? But that's not Paul's emphasis here. He's not uh, interested here in what we must do to resolve the conflict so much as who these women must be. Now, we need to be careful not to overstate the case here. It's not saying that the Bible doesn't give us instructions for how we're to deal with conflict in the church. It does, and even in this passage, we'll see a little bit of that. But that's not where Paul goes with these women. He simply says, agree in the Lord. Now, if Paul's primary concern then is that these women would, would have an agreed upon or a shared attitude in Jesus... What type of attitude does he want them to have? The text doesn't say a lot, but I think Paul gives us some subtle and helpful clues. The word Paul uses in the original language is one that he especially favors in Philippians. The word is phreneo in the Greek, and it's a word that refers not just to a way of thinking cognitively, but to an outlook or an attitude that encompasses both the mind and the heart. And Paul uses this word for neo 23 times in his writings. Ten of those times occurs here in Philippi. And if we look at how this word is used in, in Paul's writings in Philippi and, and elsewhere, we're going to begin to understand what Paul means specifically in verse 2. That's a basic principle of studying the Bible. You look and see uh, how the word is used in other contexts to help inform the meaning of the passage in front of you. And what we find is that when Paul uses this word to speak about uh, how we should think or the attitude that we should have as Christians, there are two defining themes that emerge uh, in his thought. First, when we look at how Paul uses this word in Philippians, we see that a Christian attitude is one that is ambitious to know more of Jesus and more of his resurrection power, more of his holiness. We looked at that extensively in chapter 3, but we see the word in Philippians 3.15. Paul says, let those of you who are mature think, that's our word, uh, this way. And he, he, he distinguishes a Christian attitude of pursuing Christ and pursuing holiness with those who are enemies of the cross. Their mind, their attitude, their way of thinking is set on earthly things. So a Christian attitude is concerned with knowing more of Jesus, more of his holiness. 
But a second theme emerges in connection with this uh, uh, word, and and it's related uh, to this idea of growing uh, more like Jesus. Paul speaks of a Christian mindset or attitude uh, that it's characterized by humble service toward others. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at some different passages, so you're going to want them open. So turn with me uh, back to Philippians 2, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 5. In Philippians 2, verses 3 and 5, three times Paul uses this word. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's our first instance. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's the word a second time. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, there's the third occurrence, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here Paul is urging the Philippians to have a shared way of thinking that's characterized not by a self-focus or or inordinate self-concern, but by an others-focused humility. And it's a way of, of thinking, it's an attitude that we see most clearly in Jesus who gave his life for us and for our salvation. But the significance of this word can be shown even more strongly if we see how Paul uses it elsewhere. So I'm going to take you to three other passages to show how uh, when Paul uses this word to speak of, of the Christian attitude or way of thinking, he's speaking of an attitude of humility that promotes unity. So turn uh, to Romans 12. In Romans 12, Paul's uh, turned his attention in the first uh, uh, part of the book. He's been speaking about the grace that we've received from God uh, in Jesus. Now in verse 12, he's, he's saying, what does it look like to live in light of this grace, in light of this mercy in the church? So Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly, that's a related word, than he ought to think. There's our word. But to think, there's our word again, with sober judgment, another related word, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So here, a Christian outlook is characterized by a measured and humble view of yourself. And now skip down to verses 15 and 18. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And there, that's our word. The translators have, used, uh, have sort of fleshed that out to give us the sense of it, but that's the word we're looking for. Don't, uh, do not be haughty. There's our word a second time, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise. There's the word a third time in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So catch this. Considering God's mercies, Paul says uh, we're to have uh, the same attitude, which is an attitude that's not haughty or puffed up or proud, uh, but with such an attitude, so far as we're we're responsible, we're to live at peace in unity with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now flip to Romans 15. The chapter begins, Paul's talking about how the strong and weak are to live with one another in the church. 
And then in language that echoes Philippians 2, he says in, in Romans 15 two, let each of us please his neighbor. In other words, think, humbly serve him for his good to build him up. And we do this because Jesus didn't think only of himself or please himself, but he bore our reproaches for our good. And then look at verse 5. Paul prays, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony, that's our word again, with one another, or might he give you such an attitude or an outlook in accord with Jesus, that together with one voice, so the purpose of having that, that shared humble attitude is unity, this one voice, that with one voice you would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. So notice the connection. A Christian attitude is one of humility, which is associated with unity. I'm going to make one final connection to, to drive the point home. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. You can turn there. Paul's finishing uh, the book, uh, his second letter to the Corinthians here, uh, and he's addressing an ongoing conflict in the Corinthian church. And he says in chapter 13, verse 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. There's our, our, our verb again. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Adopt this way of thinking, Paul says to the Corinthians. Share the same Christian attitude. And doing so, Paul connects with living at peace with one another. So we sort of hopscotched our way through these uh, texts because I want to see for yourself three things. First, that a key part of the Bible's teaching uh, as to what attitude or, or mindset we're to have as Christians is a humble uh, servant attitude toward others. And secondly, that adopting this humble attitude is connected frequently in the Bible to peace and unity in the church. And then thirdly, that while Paul is calling Judea and Syntyche here to agree in the Lord, he's not just calling these women to, to have this attitude, but he calls the Roman church, the Corinthian church, and he calls the church here at Harvest to the same. So our passage today is just three small, short verses, but when we take this piece of the puzzle, we set it in the, the, the frame of what Paul says in Philippians and the rest of, of the New Testament, we see that an important part of resolving conflict and promoting peace in the church is to share this common attitude or this heart that comes to us in Jesus, an attitude of humility. And we need to stop at this point to take evaluation of our own relationships within the church. See Paul's concern for addressing divisions within the body of Christ. Both in chapter 1 and here in chapter 4, Paul is pressing this point that to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we should strive for a unity of attitude or outlook in the Lord. Unity in the church grounded in the truth of the gospel is not a secondary matter. Unity in the church is something that Paul asserts. It's something that the Bible uh, delights in and praises. It's something that Jesus prays for. It's something Paul appeals to us for. We can spend a lot of, of time, a lot of effort on things that are good, yet peripheral. But unity in the church is not a peripheral matter. It's something of great concern to the Apostle Paul as we see him addressing it in his letter here. So do you and I feel the same way? 
What are your relationships like with your fellow church members? Now, this could be someone on the, the opposite side of the auditorium, or it could be the person uh, sitting beside you and that you're driving home with. Paul's personal concern for unity in the church should challenge us. What, atten- what relationships do I need to give attention to? What breaches in Christian fellowship can I shore up? Who do I need to call, uh, reach out to, and, and say, you know, let's work this out? And if we take unity in the church seriously, the next set of questions that we have to ask ourselves are, uh, do I have this attitude of humble service that Paul is appealing uh, that, that we should have? Are there areas or instances that I've uh, failed to count the interests of others as more significant than my own? Yes, there are many more things uh, that might be required depending upon the situation. Sometimes conflict can be very complicated. But even if unity or even if humility is not a, a sufficient condition for unity, it's a necessary condition. You won't have unity in the church without humility. How many conflicts in the church can you think of that have been resolved when both parties were entirely focused on serving their own agenda? Or by contrast, how many fights can you see when two Christians in sincerity have come to one another and said, how can I serve you in this situation? What would be, what would be helpful uh, uh, to you in this? What would, be, what would be honoring to the Lord in this? Mutual Christ-like humility is like fire retardant to conflict in the church. It slows conflict down. It stops the spread. It reduces the intensity. And so how do, we, how do we get this mind? How do we grow in it if we've tested ourselves and see that, that we're lacking? Well, this is where we've got to go back to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul tells us that this mind is given to us in Jesus as we trust in him, the one who's laid down his life for us and for our salvation. Ultimately, we, we gain and grow in this attitude uh, as we are more and more taken up with Jesus. But it's an attitude also cultivated as we, we pray to him, as we ask him uh, for it, asking that his spirit would grow us uh, to be more like Jesus. It, it's grown as we pursue it in community with other Christians who will challenge us to it. It's, it's practiced as we take that courageous step of, of stepping out and asking that question, how can I help? And yet sometimes, for various reasons, we can't resolve interpersonal conflict on our own. People are unwilling to engage humbly with one another. There's a disagreement over the facts of the situation or how to interpret the facts. The conflict snowballs as sin is responded to with more sin. Scriptures misapplied. One or both parties refuse uh, to repent of sin that's being committed. The reality of the matter is that sometimes, even among sincere Christians, we get stuck and need help. Yudia and Sinski were both women who loved Christ and served Christ, and yet they found themselves stuck. And being stuck was a matter of concern for the church because their dispute was known to others. It was creating divisions uh, that was unfitting for the gospel community. And when this happens in the church, we need help. See the example Paul gives us in chapter 4, verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. The Bible's realistic about our relationships. It recognizes that sometimes we can't resolve our differences on our own. 
So in Philippi, Paul calls this one who he calls a true companion, a reference uh, perhaps to uh, one of the elders at Philippi. He calls this true companion to assist in working toward reconciliation with these women. And here's the lesson for us. Maintaining the unity which is ours in Jesus is a family project. At times, because we are still battling sin, we'll get stuck and we'll need help from others. And when Jesus saves us from our sin, he brings us into a body. And sickness in the body is a concern for the body as a a whole. We don't just say, well, that's just an an infection in my leg. Uh, The leg will deal with it. I don't have to worry about it. It's no big deal. Now, not many of us like conflicts. We tend to want to avoid them. And so it's important for us to make this point, given our aversion, that because within the church, uh, or in, in the church, we need to be ready and willing to help address conflict. Now, there are a ton of qualifications that th- this discussion uh, would call for, but here's an important one. This does not mean that we should insert ourselves into quarrels improperly. This isn't an excuse to be a busybody. Like uh, Proverbs 26, 17, it tells us whoever meddles in a, uh, in a quarrel not, like, not his own is like the guy who uh, grabs a, a passing uh, dog by the ear. Right? What happens when you do that? You're going to get bitten. So don't go out in search of conflict, but there are times and places where we are rightly involved. So for example, those who are in authority, elders, deacons, parents, ministry team leaders, uh, you have a responsibility for those who are under your care to address conflict that disrupts Christian unity. Or someone approaches you, like Jesus instructs in Matthew 18, and they ask you to come along as a, as a witness to address a matter of concern. They've tried to, hasn't worked, they want to go again. So you don't go to prosecute the case or just to be on their side, but you're there as a witness to help objectively, kindly, humbly facilitate a conversation between these parties and, and help them to work through the grievances. Or another possibility is that someone brings up to you in, in the course of a conversation that there's some sort of conflict uh, that's going on. Now, you don't want to get into all the details of that conflict uh, uh, there. That wouldn't be appropriate, but you might ask, have you talked to that person? And if you have, uh, uh, do you need help to go talk to them again? And if you find yourself in a situation like this, how do you help? Now, other passages of Scripture speak to this, and we don't have time to get into the specifics. I would commend to you Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, very helpful on this topic, I think. But here's some quick bullet points of ways that you can help. First of all, pray. Pray for Christ-like humility uh, and gentleness for the parties involved. Pray for your own involvement. Encourage humility, that humble attitude our passage enjoins for us. Speak the truth, but do it in love. Hear both sides of the story before passing judgment. Avoid favoritism. Cheer on the good. It might even involve encouraging uh, the God-given ways of dealing uh, with conflict, recognizing that there, sometimes, uh, after unsuccessful attempts to work through things, there might be a a, a time to call in the elders or or that church discipline needs to be considered. Paul's call for his co-workers to help invites us to see that we don't go looking to insert ourselves in quarrels in the church, but there's an appropriate place. There's a call to have concern and to help in these instances. But helping is hard. It's also tiring. 
It involves time. It comes at great emotional uh, expense. And sometimes it can involve getting caught in the crossfire. So why should we help? Why should we care? Let me give you two closing encouragements that will support you when you're going out the door uh, to help uh, with that hard conversation or you're picking up that phone uh, to, to deal with a broken relationship. Here's the first encouragement. By working for unity, you strengthen the church and spite the devil because a church divided against itself cannot stand. You see, Jesus will ensure that his church will prevail. 100% confident of that fact. But Jesus hasn't promised that any particular local church will survive. He hasn't promised that Harvest Church will be here 100 years from now or even 10 years from now. There have been plenty of gospel outposts that have had their light extinguished by members of the church biting and devouring one another. We cannot stand firm in the Lord against the opposition of the world if we're not resolved to stand together. Here's how one commentator put it. Division among Christians is a serious flaw in the church's armor against the world. Where there is disharmony inside, there is bound to be defeat outside. Christians cannot win on the main front of their contact with the world if they are secretly carrying on warfare on a second front of their own devising. So pouring ourselves out for the unity of the church is an exercise in reinforcing the church's defenses as the world and as the devil hammer away seeking to tear the church apart. So maybe we could say it this way. Promoting peace and reconciliation in the church is an act of war. It's an act of spiritual warfare. When you sit down for a counseling appointment or you go to a meeting, uh, when you're helping to address unity-destroying uh, sin, you aren't just having a hard conversation. You're girding the church against the assaults of the prince of darkness. Standing firm in the Lord requires being serious about our unity in the Lord. But there's a second encouragement that we can take from our text. We give ourselves to the work of promoting peace and reconciliation in the church because of our shared salvation. Paul, speaking of his partners in the gospel, this includes Clement, these unnamed partners, but also Judea and Syntyche, he says their names are written in the book of life. Now, the book of life in scripture is often used to speak of God's heavenly record of all those he has and will save from eternal judgment. And so as Paul appeals to his true companion to assist, to help with conflict in the church, this reference to the book of life draws our attention to the fact that not only are the people we're in community with our fellow soldiers contending for the gospel, but they're fellow heirs with us of the grace of God. So think of who Judea and Syntyche are in God's eyes. Right? They're his redeemed. They're his purchased possession. Now, from a, an earthly perspective, people who are caught in conflict can be hurting, defensive, difficult, and miserable. Right? Being in conflict can have that effect on us. And as a helper, you might think, I'm not particularly drawn to this person right now. Right? All we see is drama and difficulty. But Paul will not let us have such low thoughts of our fellow believers. He shatters that illusion that helpers like uh, this true companion, like you or I, 
This illusion that we might otherwise be tempted to believe that those who are caught in conflict are impositions not worthy of our time because their names are written in the book of life. They've been made trophies of his grace and mercy. They're tremendously valued in God's eyes. They're loved by him, and so we should love them too. Eager to, be re- eager to help them be reconciled to a brother or a sister, and eager to help them maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here's what our text calls us to. Stand firm, agree, help. And do this particularly as we pursue unity through humility and help others in this as the situation requires. May God help us in this. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, as we think of this text and these two women, we know that um, you are calling us uh, to pay attention to more than just this one conflict that happened long ago. But we see from these words your care for unity in the church, your desire that your church would be strengthened, that we might stand firm against the devil and against the world. And so I pray that the... um, that as a result of this sermon and your spirit taking this word and challenging us with it and applying it to us, that we would walk out from Sunday and your church would have been strengthened, strengthened to stand firm in the Lord by your grace and strengthened to stand firm united in the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you uh, please stand with me as we sing our song of response, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds.